Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore the impacts of recent federal water cutbacks happening in our region. And we head up to the high country, where COVID incidence rates are surging following the winter holidays, and an ongoing housing crisis is exacerbating longstanding issues for many. If you start digging into problems in ski towns, you will end up at housing. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The redistricting process is bringing a lot of changes to Colorado. Voters in Greeley and North Denver are gearing up for a spirited campaign to elect a new member of Congress in the November midterms. And voters on the West Slope are also joining a new district that's shaking up their political reality. KUNC's Scott Franz starts our show today with more on how residents in northwestern Colorado are reacting to their new spot on the congressional map. Savannah Wolfson doesn't mince words as she describes what some people in Oak Creek think of their new congressional district stretching all the way to Boulder County. They're mad as hell. They're mad as hell, especially the ranchers. Wolfson is a Republican who says her town's priorities are quite different from those on the Front Range. Oak Creek is a small community in Route County that's known for its contributions to the coal mining industry. It welcomes hunters and is close to sprawling ranches set against the flat-top mountains. And with our water interests being so different, especially We feel really that the Front Range tries to take away a lot of our resources. Oak Creek has less than a thousand residents. It went from being represented by first-term Republican Lauren Boebert in the 3rd Congressional District to being a part of the 2nd Congressional District that's represented by Democrat Joe Neguse. Wolfson thinks the new boundaries will exacerbate an urban-rural divide. My community's needs will be ignored because has anyone in Boulder ever heard of Oak Creek, Colorado? I don't think so. It's a really long drive for us to even get there. We don't have geographical commonality with them. They voted in Wolves, whereas we didn't. Wolfson was one of dozens of Route County residents asking an independent commission last fall to keep the county in the third congressional district. But residents in the nearby and more populated community of Steamboat Springs felt a stronger connection to other resort counties like Grand and Summit. If you were a politician, and you were looking to get the most votes, would you come to South Route or would you go to the bigger cities on the Front Range that we're looped in with? It's just a more efficient use of your time to go to somewhere like Boulder and get a massive crowd versus coming to Oak Creek or Yampa or Phippsburg. The new CD2 is going to give us a very strong district-wide voice in uh, D.C. But 20 miles to the north in Steamboat Springs, Democrat Catherine Carson is excited about the new map. And where Wolfson sees contrasts and concerns, Carson sees similarities and opportunities. When you've got six other counties in the new CD2 that have similar issues like the need for climate action, it gives our our legislator the opportunity to partner with the communities and find very meaningful legislation and actions. Carson sees the new district elevating concerns like housing shortages, which have hurt resort towns as they try to rebound from the pandemic. Instead of being in a sprawling rural district with places like Grand Junction, 
Route will have the same representative as places like Vail and Winter Park. Our ski counties, you know, Route County included, are, are in a, a housing crisis right now. And having that district-wide voice for affordable housing legislation, um, anything from, you know, funding for, for infrastructure to the low-income housing tax credit program, is going to make a make a big difference for us. Back in Oak Creek, Savannah Wolfson sees her new political neighbors very differently. A lot of the ranchers who have been here for five generations are feeling like they have less rights than somebody who moved here more recently. Voters in the new second district will get their first chance to pick a representative during the midterm election this fall. But political scientists say races heavily favor incumbent candidates, and Wolfson does not see her new political reality changing anytime soon. I see it as an unwinnable seat, frankly. I'll spend my time in winnable races. I've already had uh, quite a bit of uh, communication from Congressman Nagoose's office just asking and how they could help and what the issues are, much more than I, I had had from our, our previous Congress people. Neither Carson nor Wolfson mentioned their specific representatives very much when talking about their switch to the 2nd District. Both say they are more focused on the issues in their district instead of who leads it. I'm Scott Franz. This is one of three stories focusing in on the recent congressional changes in Colorado for 2022. You can find our other reporting at KUNC.org. Thousands of people who've been displaced by the Marshall Fire are now faced with the daunting task of finding a place to live. That search would be difficult under the best of circumstances, but right now available housing along the Front Range happens to be in very short supply. Seeing a need, two realtors in the Denver metro region started a Facebook group to help connect survivors who need a short-term place to stay with people who have one. The group is called Marshall Fire Housing Needs and Availability, and it now has around 2,500 members. We're joined now by those realtors, Shannon Schleip and Amanda devito Parle. Shannon, let me start with you. What was the idea behind starting this kind of grassroots way to help people after the Marshall Fire? So my in-laws lost, my in-laws and several of our friends lost their homes in the East Troublesome Fire in Grand Lake. And one of the biggest needs after that fire um, was temporary housing. And what we found is that temporary housing is actually more of a long-term housing need because, you know, the rebuild process is at least one to three years for these people. So um, Friday morning, when I kind of realized the severity of this fire and, and this situation, Um, I just got this idea that it would be really helpful to have a common place to connect people, um, survivors who need a place to live with people who have available, available housing. And Amanda, this seems like a pretty natural way for both of you to leverage your areas of expertise. For us, this was a natural way to connect because we have a deep understanding of the real estate market. Um, we have a deep understanding of the housing shortage that, you know, existed even pre-fire. And so this was um, sort of a natural way for us to take some of our talents and knowledge of the industry and parlay that into, you know, a housing need that we knew was going to be huge, um, just based on the, the low supply of inventory in the market. And so, um, you know, the market conditions were, you know, were sort of paramount in us understanding that there's going to be a great need here. 
Yeah, it seems like finding rental housing through normal channels in this area would be very unaffordable for many people. Yeah, I mean, affordability is one issue, but also just supply of residential inventory, um, both for purchase and for rental, is also remarkably low. So as of yesterday morning, when I pulled the statistics, we had um, fewer residential housing units for sale than the Denver metro area has ever had, well, as long as I can report back on history. So as of yesterday morning, we had 1,537 residential houses for sale between Longmont and Castle Rock, Evergreen to Aurora. And we had 531 condo units for sale at that same time, which basically is no inventory. It's a very, very tight inventory. Um, I could set that against like 2006 and 2007 inventory where we had something like 30,000 residential units for sale at that time. Having less than 2,000 residential units for sale is just remarkably low inventory levels. And so, you know, that in and of itself is problematic without coupling, a, a, you know, a tragic fire on top of this. And so for Shannon and I, we just want to, you know, be able to marry people together who have a need. And um, that includes people who have a house that they can put up for rent and particularly long-term and those who have, have a need to be able to move into something. And so we are just really taking a service-oriented mindset and really trying to make sure that people who, who have a need can, can get that need met. Judging by the number of posts on the page, it's clear that this is really filling a need. Shannon, what will make you feel that this has been a success? Honestly, just giving people a long-term place to live. Um, you know, up in Grand Lake, I know people who've moved three, four, five times. So our goal here is really long-term, um, trying to be a resource for people, um, trying to put them into more permanent housing rather than, you know, connecting them with a sofa to sleep on for the next week or two weeks. We're, we're really thinking more long-term here um, because like I said, this is going to be potentially a year to a three-year rebuild process for people. Shannon Schleip and Amanda devito Parl started the Marshall Fire Housing Needs and Availability Facebook group. You'll find a link at our website, KUNC.org. Shannon, Amanda, thank you both so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The ongoing drought in the Colorado River Basin means some will have to use less water thanks to a federal mandate starting this month. In Arizona, where the cuts will be felt the most, it means a stronger reliance on water stored underground. But that's not a long-term solution. In the latest of a series of stories looking at the situation in Arizona, KUNC's Alex Hager has more. In Arizona, where the land is so often defined by the desert, there's plenty of water if you just know where to look. Is there groundwater under our feet right now? Yes. How far? Um, I'm going to say about 200 feet. I'm in a suburban area of Phoenix with Marvin Glotfelty. He's a fourth-generation Arizonan and a hydrogeologist who's worked on more than 1,000 wells, the kind that retrieves the water beneath our feet. If you had a fish tank and you filled it with sand, and then filled that sand, poured water until it went halfway up, and you could see, looking through the glass, and you could see the, the little pebbles, the little grains in there. And there was water in between them. That's what it looks like. 
And the water between those grains, some of it has been down there for 11,000 years since the Ice Age, but some of it is pumped in by humans who use underground aquifers to store excess water. The problem is, right now, it's being taken out faster than it's put back in. From my technical background, I'd tell you that it's a lot of uh, water providers are pretty close to the edge, pretty close to running out sometimes, and that's really concerning. As Arizona's share from the Colorado River is reduced due to drought, they'll have less excess to store underground and will lean more on what they can store. We should recognize now, as we do with the Colorado River, that we have to take action before it's too late. Kathleen Ferris has made groundwater her life's work, writing some of Arizona's foundational laws on the matter in the early 1980s and later running the state's Water Resources Department. We're still taking more groundwater out than is replenished. And since groundwater is a finite supply, ultimately, if you do that for over a long period of time, uh, you won't have that resource to rely on. If people could only see the groundwater supply shrinking like they can the bathtub rings left by dropping water levels in Lake Mead, she says, they might be more concerned. But until then... It's a concept that's really gotten out of hand. It has become the go-to mechanism for developing. Ferris says new neighborhoods are built on the promise that they can rely on groundwater for a hundred years. But she's skeptical. We will get to a tipping point at some point where there won't be that those renewable water supplies for to buy to replenish the groundwater pumped. But she says that hasn't stopped developers. These big master plan communities and these big developments, the developers don't stay around for 100 years and manage what's going on. They, they, they sell the land and they move on. And who is stuck with the problem? the city or the water company that serves that area and the people who live in that area. As for the developers, they see things differently. Well, it is sustainable for residential growth. Spencer Camps works on legal issues for the Arizona Home Builders Association. He says over the years, new homes have actually helped Arizona to use water more sustainably. And the two reasons that we use the same amount of water as we did in 57 is because of residential growth, and conservation. Homes, he says, use less water than agriculture. And rules are in place requiring residential areas to put water back. When homes are built on farmland and we retire that ag use and that ag pumping, which is unreplenished, we use less water. But with Phoenix expected to grow by about a million people in the next decade, Kathleen Ferris says you can't have it both ways. It's why she's calling for updates to the groundwater laws she helped to write. You can't just rely on something you did 40 years ago to solve everything. You've got to look at now the situation and figure out what to do next. And that's where we are. We're in the figuring out what to do next phase. Which comes at a critical time. Drought has already forced mandatory cutbacks for some parts of Arizona using water from the Colorado River. And with climate change, water experts say even more cuts are likely to come. In Phoenix, I'm Alex Hager, KUNC. Following a surge of holiday visitors, many of Colorado's mountain towns are now dealing with a surge of COVID-19. Pitkin County announced on Tuesday new cases tied to the county that brought its incident rate to one of the highest in the nation. Several mountain counties, including Eagle and Summit, recently reinstated their mask mandates amid the Omicron surge. 
And on top of the coronavirus, recent winter weather has led to closed and crowded roads and canceled flights, creating transportation issues for locals and out-of-towners alike. Jason Blevins covers the high country and the outdoors for the Colorado Sun, and he's with us now for more on the state of things in the high country following the holiday season. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Erin. Now, obviously, a lot going on over the last few weeks in the mountains. It's a really critical time for towns that rely on tourism dollars, but it's also a critical time in the fight against COVID with the recent Omicron surge. Can you sort of bring us up to speed on where mountain towns are following the holidays? Well, they are catching their breath, let's say. Um, Mm -hmm. We've had a very, very busy couple weeks, busy holiday, as most Christmas, New Year's, New Year holidays are. We have I mean, a lot of people come to town for these uh, these end of December holidays, and they the arrival of all these crowds came with just all time snowfall, just huge snows. Um, every resort was just getting hammered, which is great, um, and that came after weeks of not enough snow. So snow always comes when it comes <laughs> you can't really can't really have it you know one way or the other and it just really stressed you know we're, we have a labor shortage up here we have a housing crisis that's triggered the labor shortage there's you know locals are competing with wealthier people for homes and there's fewer places for them to live that's translated into fewer workers on the ground and you know it's sort of an all hands on deck deck scenario in resort towns when uh, these crowds arrive and there just weren't enough hands on deck this this time around We mentioned critical road closures and canceled flights. I'm wondering how these transportation issues are impacting these mountain towns, locals or otherwise. Sure. I mean, you know, we we just had closures on I-70 yesterday, and that was just to pick up so they could clean up the um, carnage of semis and cars that were off the road from the previous few days in the snowstorms. Um, So, yeah, that certainly does not help. But in some ways it does help because it keeps the uh, the drive up visitors sort of at bay when passes are closed and things like that. But we had, you know, a couple big pileups in Glenwood Canyon, closures on Vail Pass, closures at the tunnel Um, that certainly impacts the flow of traffic. And, you know, and it also when it hits these regional airports, it leaves people kind of trapped you know there's a lot of canceled flights at at these resort airports and lots of folks were unable to get out of town and that's a problem when you know you leave a room your hotel room at 11 and someone's checking in at three but you don't have anywhere to go um yet more crazy pressures and then of course we added the omicron on top of everything yeah absolutely and these transportation issues are certainly inconvenient but uh do they impact healthcare too um, you know, we, we see that I, I heard there were, you know, injuries in some of these pileups and they're just challenged to get ambulances and things in there. Um, you know, and if you do need a, you know, ambulance ride down to a major hospital in Denver that you can be in, in big trouble. But, you know, I've, I've heard stories of that, but I haven't actually called the hospital and checked in. But they are I do know that the hospital is uh, filling up with with covid patients as well as. You're just typical, you know, hurt shoulders, hurt knees, hurt legs from, you know, busy, busy ski weeks. Yeah, skiing and snowboarding, you know. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Now, visitors to many of these towns, as you mentioned, faced big crowds, long lines, parking issues. And this isn't really new for many, but things seemed especially jammed up. Was this different from what we typically see? 
you know, the, the labor crisis is hurt. And, um, you know, uh, if you read my story, I kind of focused on, on one company, Vail Resorts. They're the largest in North America. So kind of an easy target and easy to pick on. But they uh, they had sold 2.1 million pre-purchased lift tickets and season passes for this season. That is a significant increase up 76% from two seasons ago. So, you know, um, a whole lot of lift tickets. And they had they had trimmed their staff numbers, their middle management numbers to to, you know, bare bones to be able to recoup some losses from the previous pandemic year. And then all this snow, all these crowds, a real challenge getting local workers on the ground. Um, and it's just it, it just all came to a head. It's sort of a perfect storm right now. Um, you know, everyone wants to go skiing. Everyone has their passes and they expect a certain level of service and resorts were simply unable to get terrain open you know they didn't have staff at to run chairlifts they didn't have cat drivers they didn't have enough um uh, you know lift mechanics to help to help you know prep for the season and get things rolling so it's a challenge on on a number of fronts and that just meant you know more people crowded on a fewer runs even though the snow was there to open up new terrain and you know you're hearing from some of the higher ups this is one of the most challenging uh, you know holiday seasons that they've ever seen in the history of the company Oh, yeah. And you write some of the worker shortages at these resorts have actually maybe been in the making before the pandemic uh, with companies like Vail Resorts uh, buying up other resorts and then consolidating operations. Exactly. Uh, the Vail Resorts model is uh, very centralized. They move a lot of, say, human resources, financial, administrative tasks and payroll and all this stuff to their headquarters in Broomfield. And then, you know, sort of bare bones, the, the operations on the ground in these resort communities um, that, you know, that decision is, is uh, you know, efficient. And it certainly has pleased investors. The company's stock is at an all time high and they are, um, you know, have a ton of cash on hand, making a lot of money. Uh, but when it, you know, when you combined with some employee cuts from, you know, quarantining from the Omicron variant and then combine that with fewer middle management staff on the ground in resort communities. Um, they were just, they didn't have enough people to, to make the wheels turn and they got kind of caught, you know, shorthanded. And that, that was evident with some, uh, with some lines. And like you said, this was building, this is not necessarily an, you know, COVID problem. It's, it's a problem that was that sort of stacking up and really, all came to a head um, over these past couple of weeks. Mm, right. Well, one other thread we've been following through the pandemic is the ongoing housing crisis that's unfolding in the high country. How does housing play into some of these things that we've talked about? Uh, you know, if, if you start digging into problems in ski towns, you will end up at housing. Um, so during the pandemic 2020, starting in the spring of 2020, um, people moved here. They moved up into the high country. They loved it. Why wouldn't you? It's the greatest place to live in the world so people moved up here and they started buying houses and they started you know either they moved in to their second home houses they moved into their new homes they work from computers they don't necessarily they're not necessarily part of the tourism based economy so that that really limited the number of homes that have long been available to locals who rented you know for a year you know spots for them to to pack and crowd into and, and you know work with the ski bum life that those homes are not available anymore so that's really pinch supply and it just takes so long for resort companies and resort operators to build new homes it takes years 
through permitting and and you know all the all the local regulation to get to go vertical with high density housing and so again you know some some decisions made earlier in these local communities to really you know scrutinize uh high density housing came to a head in these past couple of years and there are not enough pillows for workers right well there's always a lot going on up in the high country uh it's a new year jason what are you going to be following well the snow keeps coming which is awesome and you know we all need snow and i think this breather um you know this is a typical slow couple few weeks right now as uh as we kind of brace for the February holidays and then the March spring breaks and things like that. So, you know, I think there's time for resorts to kind of catch their breath and, and regroup and get, get things back together. Once the trains open, the machine rolls a little more efficiently, but, you know, I think what we saw was, you know, when you sell just, you know, an amazing number of passes and you have limited terrain, you're going to irritate a lot of local communities as well as your guests. So hopefully they can, find an answer to that uh, in the in the coming weeks and, and open more terrain. Um, you know, long term, we're still looking at housing. It's the most critical issue in, in, in the high country right now. If if resort communities cannot get some vertical high density housing going very quickly, this will be a problem that will continue for many years. Um, resorts are going to have to start paying more. We're going to have to start, you know, really paying sort of a livable wage for if, to make people, you know, able to survive in some of these communities where, you know, housing is just so expensive. Jason Blevins covers the high country and the outdoors for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to his latest reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thanks. Great to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, parts of the Republican River in eastern Colorado have stopped flowing entirely, and that's causing issues for those who rely on water from the river. Tomorrow, we start a three-part series looking at the issues facing the river and the people who depend on it. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 